It's been said that a great first line is nearly as important as everything that comes after it. We might think of some famous first lines from literature. Lines like the opening line to A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. Or perhaps we think of Zora Neale Hurston's first line in Their Eyes Were Watching God when she says, ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. Now there's a good line. Or perhaps 1984 by George Orwell. It was a bright, cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. Undoubtedly, the, the greatest opening line in cinema has to be from Star Wars, right? A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You combine that with that scrolling yellow script going out into outer space and you've, you've gripped an audience, right? That was iconic. A good opening line, it stokes curiosity. It, it, it sets the tone for the rest of the story. And while it may not seem like it, Matthew is doing just that as he begins his narrative of Jesus. Now, you might be laughing at that because we just read 17 verses of a genealogy, a list of names. Now, there's a real attention grabber, right? To us, this may seem a boring way to begin a gospel. But for the person who's familiar with the Old Testament, Matthew is sending up signal flares. His, his opening sentence is a messianic air siren. It's an iconic attention grabber. Because what Matthew is telling the reader as he begins his gospel account of the life and the ministry of Jesus... What he's telling us through this list of names, this genealogy, is that the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth is a history-altering reality. That his birth means for mankind a new beginning and the fulfillment of all of God's promises. The Bible begins with a creation story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as you read the creation account in Genesis 1, there is this refrain that resounds through the creation story. God spoke, and it was so, and it was good. God spoke, and it was so, and it was good. God is speaking life into existence. He's, he's speaking light into the darkness. He's speaking substance into a lack of substance. He's speaking life and light into all of creation. He speaks, and it was so, and it was good. Genesis crescendos toward the creation of mankind, after which God pronounces his very good over all that he's made. And then he rests in the enjoyment of all that he's made in the seventh day. But soon enough, we know that after Genesis 1 and 2 comes Genesis 3. And things begin to spiral 
out. In Genesis 3, we read of this cunning serpent we later learn is Satan. And this serpent is an adversary of God and his creation. And he comes and he tempts the humans into rebellion. And all that was pronounced very good is suddenly ruined and undone. And now a curse pervades the creation. And yet amidst the catastrophe of sin, as God is telling the humans the results, the implications of of their rebellion, there's this one single glimmer of hope that God gives them amidst the curses. A promise made to the woman that though there will be war between the serpent and the sons of Adam, that there will be a future seed of Eve who will come to crush the head of the snake. That There's this promise of a future deliverer who comes through the lineage of the human race, through the seed of the woman. And this promise really sets the Bible in motion on a trajectory of struggle and hope in a coming salvation. And so as the narrative unfolds, we, a few chapters later, get to a man named Noah. And we're told that Noah found favor with God. And God tells Noah to build an ark. And through that ark, God rescues Noah and his family. And then he sends a deluge, a flood. And the whole earth is destroyed except for that which was inside of the boat. It's a beautiful picture of salvation. Noah and his family are spared. And we think that with Noah, we get a new start. Noah is sort of presented to us in the biblical story as a new Adam. And we think maybe with Noah... Things are going to be right and good again. And what we learn is that as Noah gets off of the boat, he plants a vineyard and he gets drunk. And then there's some indiscretion between him and his son. Noah isn't the promised seed of the woman. And the story continues. And one by one, as we read the biblical storyline, every prominent figure that surfaces, we, we're led to wonder if he's the one through whom God's going to undo the curse. Is he the one that's going to crush the head of the snake? Is he the one that's going to make things right again? And time and again, every new start falters and fails. People just keep failing. And eventually, history begins to spiral downward until Israel and Judah are taken captive. They, they, they go so much the way of the world, they fall so much into sin that God allows them to be taken over by these foreign peoples. And yes, eventually they return to their land and they begin to rebuild from the ruins. And they even rebuild the temple. And there's this... Fascinating scene in Ezra chapter 3 as the people lay the foundation for the new temple. And the young generation is shouting with joy while the old generation weeps. Because they could not help but compare to what they had known before. The glory of the second temple was nothing like the glory of the first. And they know that this can't be it. Finally, we get to the prophet Malachi who is desperately pleading for God's people to walk in faithfulness and to pursue justice. And when Malachi exits the scene, there's not another prophet in Judah. God goes radio silent. The nation goes into a time of darkness and silence and waiting. A time of Advent. 
And those intertestamental saints, the saints who live between the Old and the New Covenant, found themselves in this position of longing for God's promised salvation. They hadn't lost hope of the promise. For a Redeemer to finally appear, a Messiah, one who would come and restore the fortunes of Zion and and turn things right side up again. That word Messiah, Christos in the Greek, it means anointed one. And it was used to refer to particular offices in Israel. Usually a king or a priest was anointed into office. They were anointed for service. But eventually this title of Messiah took on a special meaning. It began to point to a a particular ruler who would come to deliver God's people. And so the people of God were waiting for this one right leader, this ruler who was going to finally come along and rescue them. And so I want you to imagine with me, it's been quite some time, it's been a long period of darkness and silence. And Matthew picks up a quill. I think that's what he used. I don't know. And he dips it in ink. And he begins his narrative of Jesus with these words. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ. He is signaling something massive when he uses that word. We, we so easily cruise right past it as if that word is Jesus' last name. But that's not a name, it's a title. It's a title. He's telling us that Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. I mean, this is Marty McFly. This is heavy, Doc, right? This is big time. And in fact, Matthew's going to use this word repeatedly. He uses it in verse 1, in verse 16, in verse 17, in verse 18, and in chapter 2, verse 4. He is telling the reader that the one that you've been waiting for has finally come. That Jesus' arrival is the new beginning that you are so desperate for. It's a little harder for us to see because, because of our translation, but... But verse 1 literally begins in the Greek, book of Genesis. Biblos, geneseos, first two words of the Gospel of Matthew. That word that we translate account is literally the word biblos. It means book. And and that word for genealogy is, is literally the word genesis. And when you combine those together, what you have is Matthew beginning his gospel telling us that there's a second book of Genesis, that this is a new beginning. Nearly all commentators agree that this is not by accident. This is is not by coincidence, that, that Matthew is taking us back to the creation story. He's taking us back to the beginning of the Bible, and, and, and he's tying his story to that story. And he's putting Jesus forward to us as a new beginning for humanity. That that what Matthew is signaling, as R.T. France proposes, 
is that these opening words are suggesting that a new creation is now taking place. In other words, Jesus is not just the next installment in the storyline of redemption. He's not a dot on the plot line or a chapter in the story. Jesus is the climactic ending. He is the dawn of a new hope. Jesus is a new beginning. Or as as the Apostle Paul would put it in 2 Corinthians, therefore if anyone is in Christ, new creation, old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Matthew is telling us the new has come. In Christ, the new has come. Jesus is how everything is finally going to be restored and made new. He's the seed of Eve who's going to make things right. History starts fresh with the arrival of Jesus. And so listen to me. If you're here this morning visiting, or maybe you've been coming for a long time, but you find in your heart a longing for new life, What Matthew is telling us at the start of his gospel is that new life is found in Jesus. If you're in need of a fresh start, you need to look no further than Jesus. If you need hope, what Matthew is telling us is that hope is found in Jesus. The arrival of Jesus is the promise of a new beginning because he is Messiah. Son of David, son of Abraham. As Matthew introduces us to Jesus, as he holds him up to us as the Messiah, he he tags on these, these two added titles, that he's the son of David and the son of Abraham. These two important figures in Israel's history. And in fact, the genealogy that follows in those next 16 verses are aimed at showing us that Jesus actually derives his lineage from these two men. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, you'll find the origin of Abraham. Abraham was really just a nobody. He was Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans. He was a nobody from nowhere, and and God steps into his life And says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a somebody. In fact, I'm going to make you this incredible promise. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God promises that Abraham is going to possess a land. And that from Abraham's loins, a great nation would form. And that through that nation, all the families of the earth would be blessed. God tells Abraham three things. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a people. And through you, I'm going to bless the world. There was one problem with God's promise to Abram. Abram was childless. He he didn't have kids to speak of. And he was old. He was past the age of conceiving children with his wife, Sarah. And yet, nonetheless, God says, hey, I want you to leave from this place, Abram, and I want you to go to the place that I'm going to show you. And so Abraham and his wife Sarah begin this pilgrimage toward Canaan, and God is assuring them, hey, just trust me, and I'm going to provide. And as he journeys toward Canaan, there's this key moment that happens in Genesis chapter 15, where God says to Abram, hey, Abram, don't be afraid. 
I am your shield, and your reward is going to be very great. And in this candid moment, Abram says back to God, Lord, what can you give me since I still don't have a son? God, I hear the promise, but I can't see it because I don't have any children. How are you going to provide, God? And God takes Abram outside, and he says, Abram, I want you to lift your chin up, and I want you to look to the heavens, and I want you to number the stars. I want you to imagine the darkest place you've ever been. No pollution of city lights, way out in the country somewhere where you can actually see the Milky Way galaxy, where it's impossible to number the stars because there are so many. It's in this sort of a setting that God tells Abram, look up and count them if you can. God has sarcasm. So shall your descendants be. And it says in that moment that Abram believed God. He believed the promise of God. And verse 6 tells us that it was credited to Abram as righteousness. That Abram's faith in God's promise was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't do anything. He simply believed. And God said, I count you as righteous by your faith in my promise. And then Abram asked God a question. How can I know? that I'm going to possess it, God. I believe you, but how can I know? And then this really strange thing happens. God tells Abraham to essentially prepare a covenant sacrifice. He says, you need to go get a a cow and a goat, and you need to cut them in half, and you need to lay them down on two sides. And and, and what this was, was it was it was a covenant sacrifice ritual. And typically what happened was you would, you would slay these animals and then the person that you were entering, entering into relationship with, into covenant with, you would hold hands and you would walk through the sacrifice together. And the picture was this. The picture was, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, let what's happened to this animal happen to me. On my life, I will be faithful to my end of the bargain. So God tells Abraham to go prepare this covenant sacrifice. They're going to enter into covenant together. But before Abram can walk through the sacrifice, it says that a deep stupor came over Abraham. And that while he was in this stupor, a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot appear. And they passed through the animals by themselves. Abram doesn't walk through. Now, if you know anything about the Exodus story, you know that God's covenant presence is symbolized by fire. So there's no question about what's going on here. God is saying to Abraham, I'll keep both ends of the bargain here. This is an unconditional promise to Abraham, not on the basis of his faithfulness, but on the basis of God's faithfulness. Abraham, I'm going to keep my promise to you no matter what even if it costs me my life, even if your unfaithfulness, even if your unfaithfulness costs me my life, I'll keep both ends of the bargain. Now this is really significant because God is telling Abraham, hey, this promise of a land and this promise of a people and this promise of a blessing to all nations, God is going to fulfill it by himself. He's going to do it unequivocally. This won't be Abraham's doing. This will be God's doing. And God is putting his own life on the line. And see, that's what Matthew's telling us here at the beginning of his gospel. What what he's telling us is, is that Jesus Christ 
is God keeping his promise. That Jesus is how the promise to Abraham ultimately comes true. That Jesus is how God is going to bring a blessing to the whole earth. That God entered into the world as a human to fulfill the promise to Abraham. Jesus came in Abraham's line so that he could die Abraham's death and your death and my death to fulfill both ends of the bargain. Jesus dies for our failure to keep our end up. God keeps both parts of the covenant agreement. And here's why this matters. Here's why this matters for you and me. Galatians 3.27 tells us that for those who were baptized into Christ, they've been clothed with Christ. And then Paul says that as a result of being baptized into Christ, he says there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And catch it. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Christ, if you've been baptized into Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. What's Paul referring to? He's referring to the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham couldn't fathom the family that God was going to build through his loins. It was a family that transcended ethnic Jews. It's a family of every tongue, race, and tribe. All who believe in the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, are grafted into the family that we are sons of Abraham. We are daughters of Abraham by faith in Jesus. And we receive the blessing by faith in Christ. The blessing that God spoke to Abraham, that all the peoples of the earth would, would be blessed, is fulfilled in Jesus. And it means that anybody can get in on this blessing. It extends to everyone, Jews and Greeks and slave and free and male and female. And, and the question is, how do we experience it? And the answer is the same way that Abraham experienced it. By faith. By faith, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He trusted in God's promise. The only difference for us is that that promise now has a name. His name is Jesus. Matthew is telling us that the promise has a name. When we believe in Jesus, the promise is extended to us. The promise of belonging to a family that outnumbers the stars. The promise of an inheritance, not simply the land of Palestine, but the new heavens and the new earth. The promise of salvation. They're all met in Jesus Christ. We better get to David because I'm running out of time. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes another incredible promise. When you begin to read the Bible, what you'll discover quickly is that God has this habit of making promises and keeping them. In fact, he loves to enter into these promises knowing that the only way they'll ever come true is if he does all the work. And that's again what we find with David. In 2 Samuel 7, God makes David these incredible promises that, that he's going to give David a dynasty that he's going to raise up one of David's descendants and establish his kingdom. And this son of David is going to live in this father-son relationship with Yahweh. And his covenant love will never leave this Davidic son. 
his kingdom will have no end. But there was one stipulation to this covenant. It's predicated upon the righteousness of the king. It has to be a righteous son of David, an obedient son. And if you know anything about the kings who followed after David, none of them are righteous. They're all moral failures. Most of them led the nation into further confusion and strife. It's not much different than our political leaders today. And eventually Israel's kings get so bad that God lets them be taken captive. They're in exile. And it's while they're in exile that the prophets begin to point to a future leader who's going to rise up from David's line and lead them into a time of rest. They don't lose sight of the promise that God made to David. They begin to point forward to a future coming day when this Davidic king will come. Listen to how Isaiah describes his rule in Isaiah 11. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father, remember. And the branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the young lion and the fattened calf will be together and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. The young ones will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside a cobra's pit and a toddler will put his hand in a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. This is Isaiah's vision of what it's going to be like under Messiah's rule. It will be glorious, perfect justice, perfect peace, so much so that kids can play in cobra pits and not be bitten. So much so that lions and lambs will dwell together. Natural enemies will be friends. Isaiah is picturing a king unlike any of the earthly kings in his day. A king that cares about what is right. A king who is wise and delights in the fear of the Lord and leads the nation into peace and rest. And what Matthew is telling us as he begins his gospel, he's giving all of his secrets away in the first verse. He's telling us that that king has come. That king has come. In fact, the entire genealogy is set up to show just that. I'll try not to geek out here too much, but there's so much in this genealogy that we just don't have time for. But in verse 17, Matthew sort of summarizes. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the exile, 14, and from the exile to Christ, 14. What's the deal with that? Like, who cares? In the Hebrew, 
letters had numerical values. Think Roman numerals, right? Letters had numerical values. And so you could take the letters of a name and you could assign them the numerical value that was, was attributed to them and you could see what that number was. And if you take the consonants of David, remember they didn't operate in vowels back then, so it would be DVD, and you add them together, what you get is the number 14. And, and so what Matthew is telling us is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this Davidic promise. He, he constructs his entire genealogy to signal to the reader, Jesus is the promised son of David. You go back and you read the Old Testament, and you go, man, what, who is this king? Matthew's going, he's right here. He's right here. It's Jesus of Nazareth. The whole thing is set up to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. The leader you should be looking for is the son of Mary. He's the one who's going to rule in righteousness and lead you into peace. And Matthew will later record this same Jesus saying to a weary crowd, Come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In other words, if, if you long for righteousness, if you look out in the world and you go, man, the world is so broken, it's so unrighteous, it's just so messed up. Maybe you look at your own life, you look at your family dynamics, you go, man, it's just so broken. I feel so restless. I just need some, I need some hope. I need some peace. What Matthew is telling us is to look to Jesus. Come under his lordship. Jesus is saying to us, I want to give you a real rest. I think there was a temptation in Matthew's day to look past Jesus. Because he didn't arrive as he was expected to. He didn't come in and immediately throw Rome out of the way and set up shop in Jerusalem. He wasn't the king that they were looking for. He was just the king they needed. He came to deal with Israel's greatest threat, which was the threat of sin and death. And the same is true for us. We find ourselves in a world of upheaval. We, we turn on the TV and we're just, we, we're hit with these images or Maybe better, we, we get on social media and we're just, we're hit with these images of, of wars raging and sin abounding. We read Isaiah 11 and we long for the day when the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. We say, when's that day coming? But even as we wait and long for that day, we can't forget that Jesus has already come and inaugurated his kingdom. That he is the king that we need and he's the king that we already have. And I think if we're honest, we're tempted to look for a leader who gives us the empty promise of instant gratification. We want a Messiah to show up and to immediately fix all of our ills, personal and societal. But Matthew is telling us instead to look to Jesus. That he is the son of David. That he is the king we need. That he has dealt with our greatest enemy. 
that sin and death have been defeated, that the serpent's head has been crushed. And just as surely as he came, he will come again in righteousness to rule forever. That he is leading us to a place of peace and rest, but that we can even have peace in our hearts right now as we come to him in faith and give our lives to him. That Jesus is the one who fulfills the promise to Abraham. That he is taking us to a promised land. But even now, he reconciles us together as brothers and sisters in Christ and gives us a family to belong to. As the Apostle Paul would say it, in him, all the promises of God find their yes and amen. So brothers and sisters, as we begin this Advent journey, this season of longing and waiting, what Matthew is telling us is that Christ has come. He is the one that we're looking for. And in him, all the promises are fulfilled. Let's pray together.